Hello, everybody, and welcome to Uncork the Sun with the Vinstitute Wine School. I'm your host, Monster Kogel, and I have never required a nickname. I want to start today's episode by talking about my own backyard in a Soyuz. A few years back, I was at work, and I got a phone call from my wife, shouting against the wind, telling me that the canopy was ripping off of the metal gazebo in our backyard. I was working at Inkameep Cellars at that time, just a couple blocks away from my home, so I ran down the hill, and I tried to help her contain this, this canopy, but the winds in the Okanagan can be devastating. The whole canvas had been shredded. For another year after that, we just had no cover on our gazebo, because that model of gazebo had gone out of production, we couldn't find a replacement canvas, so on and so forth. But then a couple years in, I realized, wait a minute, I've got grapevines. I have just three little grapevines growing in my garden, round the corner from the gazebo. So next season, I started training one of the grapevines. I bent its green shoots, and I encouraged it to grow sideways around the corner of my shed, and up to the corner of the gazebo where it was able to spread out over top of the metal frame. Within a couple of months, only a couple months, I had a complete canopy, a total cover for my metal gazebo, which is about maybe nine feet by nine feet. I had leaf cover completely shading the underside, And in the fall, I had dozens of clusters of grapes hanging down overhead that could be picked from inside the gazebo. It was great. And this single vine, which is probably about 10 years old at this point, was able to single-handedly cover this entire area and produce, I counted, about 63 clusters of grapes. Now, were all of those grapes perfect? No. Some were much larger than others. Some of the clusters had undeveloped green grapes on them even by harvest time. But on the whole, and I mean, these are table grapes. They're not designed for winemaking. They're just designed to eat. They tasted pretty good. And we got bucket loads of them from a single vine that was also serving double duty as a roof. Grapes are absolutely astonishing plants. They can grow in completely inhospitable locations, and they can develop with almost miraculous vigor. I have said in the past on this podcast that they are vines, and you shouldn't forget that. They're like ivy. They're like Virginia creeper. They're like weeds, and they will grow and grow and grow uh, until you tell them to stop. And then, quite frankly, they won't listen. And so one way that viticulture, which is the science of growing grapes, differs from agriculture or horticulture is that most of a vineyard operator's time is not spent trying to encourage their crops, but it's actually spent trying to restrain them. And so today I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what it looks like in an average year trying to control the growth of grapes and encourage the finest wine possible. We're not going to be able to cover everything, not even close. So today we begin a a short mini-series, Session 1 in the Life of a Grapevine. Before we get going, you may notice uh, there's a little difference in the way that I sound today. I hope that you notice, or maybe actually I hope that you don't notice. Because if you don't notice a difference today, then it means that you didn't notice how awful the quality was in the previous three episodes. You see, I've got a fancy new microphone, and I am so jazzed to be using it here. 
It's a swanky USB Yeti microphone from the company Blue, and it was uh, remarkably difficult to get my hands on it. You know, phase one in terms of uh, buying for the global COVID-19 pandemic was uh, toilet paper, hand sanitizer. Phase two was baking supplies, yeast and flour. And phase three uh, that nobody saw coming was podcast microphones and plexiglass. If only we had had the foresight six months ago to stock up, would have saved us all a lot of trouble. But I have my new microphone now and hopefully it's going to help a lot with this podcast and also with the live stream tastings that we've been doing. The most recent of which was just last week. If you missed that, we were talking about rosé wines. And you can still find it on the Oliver Asoyus Wine Country Facebook page. There were a couple of technical issues towards the end, but just like me getting this brand new microphone, we are slowly working the kinks out every single time. I don't think that listening to this podcast or watching the live streams would really be much fun if we were just perfect at it to begin then you wouldn't really have any narrative, would you? You want to have an introduction, inciting incident, rising action, twists, reversals, climax, denouement. So tune into our next live tasting on June 9th to see if we actually managed to get it through the entire stream without the audio and image bottoming out. That's the kind of cliffhanger that brings people back. Anyways, on to today's topic. We're going to be talking about what an average year looks like when you are managing grapes. Now, a year in a vineyard is not a calendar year. It doesn't start on January 1st. It's like a tax year. It starts whenever it wants to, and it goes until whenever they tell you. So for a vineyard, we usually begin our work in December. Imagine that we've finished our harvest in October, maybe even the beginning of November. Things are starting to get cold. Some vineyards will use overhead sprinklers to spray water onto their grapevines as a way to basically create uh, insulation before things get really chilly. But then the next year in the vineyard begins before Christmas of the previous year. And it begins with pruning. And pruning begins with pre-pruning. In the months of December, January, and February, you're going to be trimming off all the growth from the previous year. Because like I said, grapevines will grow recklessly if you do not contain them. And vineyard managers don't want to collect 62 clusters of grapes from every vine like I do in my own backyard. Because they don't want those inconsistent clusters. They don't want those tiny green grapes mixed together with the ripe grapes. They want stability, they want consistency, and above all else, they want concentration. So the first step in making sure that you have a consistent, tidy harvest is pruning. We prune back our grapevines in the middle of winter because we have time to spare. And we can get a head start on the spring season when things become much busier for us. But if we're not careful, if we prune back too heavily, and then we suffer a nasty frost, the vines will get damaged. Anywhere that you're pruning a vine becomes exposed, it becomes vulnerable. And we don't want the moisture inside the vine to crystallize, freeze, and split or damage the plant itself. So that's why we do pre-pruning. Pre-pruning is when we take off most of the brush, all the old dead leaves, all the spindly vines that are sticking up towards the sky, but we don't cut it too close. That gives us a bit of safety so that in the coldest parts of winter, we can manage to sustain a little bit of cold damage without actually wounding the critical parts of our vine. Once we're done pre-pruning, we then sweep right back in and start doing pruning proper. And while you're pruning, you're making two critical decisions in the vineyard. Number one, you're selecting your trellising preference. We'll talk about that in a second. Number two is you're selecting how many buds you're gonna keep. Considering the rampant growth that grapevines are going to go through, sending out little shoots and buds everywhere, 
At this stage, you want to control and anticipate how many buds you want at harvest. Every little bud is going to grow up to either be a leaf or a cluster of fruit. And the interesting thing about vinifera, which is the scientific name for European grapevines that are what we commonly use in all popular wine production, is that on a single shoot of one of these grapevines, you'll have all these tiny little buds staggered back and forth, and they typically alternate so that one little bud will turn into a leaf, and then the next bud in line will instead turn into a cluster of fruit. The third one, leaf. The fourth one, fruit. So when you're pruning and trellising, you're leaving enough buds to give you enough clusters of fruit by basically doubling the amount that you want, because half of them are going to become leaves. To give a broad estimate of how most farmers operate down here, if you're harvesting, say, Merlot, you probably want to be picking somewhere between 10 and 12 bunches of fruit from a single grapevine growing Merlot. If you're growing something like Cabernet Franc, you may be taking 16 clusters of fruit from a single vine, because Cab Franc clusters are smaller and tighter, and you're kind of averaging it out based on weight. A plant that can survive being cropped a little higher, generating a bit more fruit without sacrificing quality, would be something like Riesling, where you can collect maybe 18 to 20 clusters of fruit from a single grapevine without compromising the taste of the wine. But all of this too depends on the trellising. The trellising is basically the shape of your grapevine and how you want to grow fruit. One of the most popular is cane trellising, where you have your initial trunk of the grapevine, and you have two shoots that grow up off of it. A shoot is green wood. But late in the season, that green wood is going to start to harden, it's going to start to develop a bark, and it's going to start to turn brown. And at that point, we don't call it a shoot anymore, we call it a cane. And if you take two of those canes and you bend them down to form the branches of a T, so that you have your trunk coming up and then two canes coming off horizontally, that's the basis of cane trellising or cane pruning. Those canes you're going to allow to basically continue from year to year, and as they grow tougher and thicker, we start to refer to them as cordons. Cordons are more permanently established canes. But if a cordon becomes a little bit old, a little bit shaggy, or it becomes damaged, we bend another shoot down, let it become a cane, and start it again. Now each one of those two canes is going to have 10 to 12 buds on it, and as I said before, those buds are all going to start to grow up into shoots. So you have an effect that looks almost like a human hand. It's slim coming up at the wrist, which is the trunk of the vine, and then it fans out into the palm, which are the two canes, and then you have all the shoots sticking vertically up into the air like fingers. And upon those fingers are where all of our grapes and all of our leaves are going to grow. Now, just because cane pruning is very popular doesn't mean that it's the only solution, and there's many other alternatives that are used down here in the South Okanagan. Some people do spur pruning, where you don't leave those original canes, you chop them right back and bend down new shoots each year. Or some people do things even more creative. Maverick Winery has done some fun experimentation with globe pruning, where they curve up their shoots from the bottom to then come together at the top, forming, well, like a globe, or like a cage, where the leaves grow on the outside and the fruit grows on the inside. And that's an interesting way to give a lot of shade to your fruit to avoid sunburn when you get particularly hot conditions on more delicate berries. They specifically have a wine called their Bushvine Syrah, that uses some of these interesting pruning techniques. But after the winter is finished and we start to get into the spring, things start to warm up, you see a lot of fun development in your grapevines. These kind of dead-looking brown plants start to perk up just a little. You've pruned them right down now, so you don't have any foliage, you don't have any of these remaining brown shoots. Now it's just the canes, it's just the cordons. But in mid-April, you start to see these little 
buds. Tiny little green nobules appearing out of the cane. And down here in Oliver, it's been really consistent that pretty much the third week of April, right around April 20th, is where we tend to see bud break. See, in the weeks leading up, the buds start to swell, they start to get kind of woolly looking, and if your average temperature has been about 10 degrees Celsius or higher in the weeks leading up to this, right around April 20th, you will see those buds open up. That's bud break. Now, there are some interesting decisions that you have to make at this point. If you have suffered winter damage and you're worried about the overall health of a grapevine, you can start watering at this point. As soon as you hit that kind of bud swell and bud break, you can then start watering like crazy to really encourage vitality in your vine. Or, if you think that you have pretty healthy vines, you can hold off on watering. In fact, right where I am, we can usually hold off watering until maybe June. But the other thing that you need to start being cautious about right now is pests in your vineyard. There are three really significant pests that we're afflicted by down here in the South Okanagan, and the first of them is powdery mildew. As easy as it is to forget about it here in the Okanagan with our ponderosa pine trees and scorpions and rattlesnakes, uh, we are still part of British Columbia, and that means it gets wet. And where moisture thrives, mildew thrives. And powdery mildew can absolutely wreak havoc on a vineyard. So typically in April, we start to come in with our dormant spray. If you have a peach tree or a cherry tree in your backyard, you might use dormant spray on it at the beginning of the season as the buds are starting to form. Dormant spray is so-called because mildew can live in dormant wood and then start to flourish as the vine begins to awaken, basically. The industry standard to deal with mildew is a spray called cumulus, which is about 80% sulfur. It's cheap, it's readily available, it's organic, and mildew cannot develop a resistance against it which means sulfur, in the form of this cumulus spray, is the perfect thing to combat something that could otherwise devastate your vineyard. So in April, we have bud break, we maybe start watering, we do our first sprays to deal with mildew, and then in May, we start to see shoot elongation. These buds start to grow, they start to develop leaves, and they start to push them out and forwards. And you get these spindly little tendrils that start stretching out, and reaching and curling as they try to find things to climb up. We have our stakes set out in the vineyard that have wires trained horizontally across them to give the grapevine something to hold onto and climb up. And by the second week of May, more or less, you're not just seeing leaves anymore, you're starting to see little clusters of fruit, tiny, tiny little baby clusters. Over the course of the month, those clusters start to grow, they grow more and more, until in June, they start to flower. A lot of people don't realize that grapevines flower, but they do have these tiny little white flowers, very delicate, almost like the individual flowers on baby's breath. And they only flower for a short time, maybe a week or so, but it's a significant sign of vine health and progress. But all of this time, through May into June and beyond, you're also doing bunch thinning. We've already talked about pruning back the old wood from last year, but now we can also start to thin bunches, which means dropping off fruit that we don't think is going to be necessary. Remember that for something like Merlot, we only want maybe a dozen bunches of fruit per vine. And if our shoots are producing too much, we want to drop some of that off before it drains too much energy from the plant. 
Now, there are some fun ways that you can play with that. At our home vineyard that the Institute Wine School is located on, we often leave excess clusters of fruit on our Riesling, and then we prune those off later in the season, which leaves the remaining clusters with a cleaner acidity, which is something that we really value in the Riesling. So you can almost uh, intentionally stunt them. But generally speaking, you do a lot of bunch thinning in May, June, and you also start watching out for the next two pests. The top three vineyard killers we have around here are powdery mildew and then two different types of insects, leafhoppers and mealybugs. Leafhoppers will go up there in this nasty grub form and they'll chew away at the grape leaves and kill them. Mealybugs will do something similar, but they're also a bad carrier for disease, so we really don't like to see them. Now, there are uh, pesticide sprays that you can use, but if you're trying to keep an organic vineyard or a salmon-safe vineyard, then you're restricted in what sprays you can use or that you want to use. So there are some interesting uh, natural deterrents. Some of the best ways to control the insect population in your vineyard are more different insects. The three best ones that we just love to see in our vineyards are uh, lacewings, which are kind of a little fly that loves to eat mealybugs and uh, leafhopper nymphs. We also like to see praying manti. One little egg sac can have 50 baby praying manti that then clamor out, and uh, they are fierce predators. They will eat every insect that's threatening your vines. And the third beneficial predator that you see uh, mostly in the Oliver area as opposed to a Soyuz, kind of closer to where the river is, are uh, dragonflies. Dragonflies are fantastic. They really help curb the population of negative insects. So we love to see these positive predators in our vineyards, but we also try to encourage them by buying eggs, by seeding colonies out in our vineyards. And so far we've been met with uh, very positive results from doing things like this, which leads us to be hopeful that uh, introducing new organisms into our area is not going to turn out like an Australia situation where you've got cane toads and rabbit-proof fences and and the largest concentration of non-indigenous camels in the world. No, so far the positive predators have not become uh, invasive. Although you never really know what's going to happen with COVID-19. Maybe next year we're going to be dealing with mutant mantis people. One step at a time, right? So now that our flowers are blooming, we've been trying to deal with the mealybugs and the leafhoppers, we've been thinning our bunches of grapes, we now get into July. And at this point, our grapevines are tall. They're huge, towering. And I talked about the wires that we string through our vineyards. Well, they're kind of indicators. The lower wire is typically used to represent where you want the fruit to be growing. You don't want fruit up and down and all around. You want fruit all growing in kind of one nice horizontal line because it makes it easier for you to count your bunches and understand how much fruit you're developing, but it also makes it a lot easier to pick. Now your top wire, that's kind of your height reference. And in July, your vines are going well past it, which means it's time to start topping them. You prune down those top shoots, but you do have to be careful. If anybody has a cedar tree in their backyard, you know that when you trim the top off, it starts to bush out sideways. And the same thing happens with grapevines, but grapevines move fast. So if you prune the top without planning ahead, your lateral shoots, which are what we call the the shoots that grow kind of sideways, are just going to explode. And you're going to have rampant vigor that is hard to control. So what we do first is we actually cut the water to these plants. Remember that even if you've delayed watering initially, we're hot enough here that you've likely had to start irrigating in June. But in July, you start to rain the water back so that you can inhibit the vigor of that vine, so that when you prune off the top, the sides are kind of too sluggish to grow. 
the way you can tell is by kind of watching for those little curling tendrils to stop grasping. If you've starved them of water just enough, then the tendrils will kind of droop a little bit instead of stretching out, hunting, and searching for new places to climb. And as soon as they start to droop, that's when you can chop the top right off. Chopping the top isn't just a way to control the growth of the vine, it creates a signal to the plant. Once that shoot that was growing up, 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 up has lost the top, it starts to become a cane, it starts to harden, it starts to grow bark. And it also sends a signal to the rest of the plant that says basically, hey yo, we're done. We're not growing anymore. Now we need to double down on what we've got and start preparing for the end of the season. Keep in mind that a plant's goal is to propagate. A grape wants to be eaten. It wants to be eaten by a bear that's going to travel, poop out the grape seeds, and make a new grapevine. And so as soon as those tops get chopped off and the canes start to harden, the plant realizes it's go time. It's time to get eaten. So it signals the fruit to start really concentrating sugar because it wants to be juicy and tasty so that bears will come and eat it. And this sort of coordinates and leads to one of the final critical stages of grape development that you're watching for. First you're looking for bud break, then you're looking for the flower bloom, and the third signal you're looking for is coloration. Coloration, which we call veraison. That is when the green grapes that have been growing already start to change color. But the color change is linked to sugar. There's a bond between the sweetness molecules and the color molecules to, to simplify really grossly. So when you start to see that change in color, it also means an intensification of the sweetness inside. Last year, we saw a raison on July 26th, and that's more or less typical. But with color change comes sweetness, but it also brings with it uh, an absorption of more moisture which means kind of an inflating of the grapes like balloons. This makes the grapes taste less tart, not because the acid levels are going down, but because the grape is growing bigger than that level of acid is going to be significant to. Think of it like this. A teaspoon of lemon juice does not taste great, very acidic. But if you mix a teaspoon of lemon juice with a couple tablespoons of sugar water, simple syrup, that tastes nice. It's clean, it's refreshing. The acid becomes pleasant. And that's what's happening internally with these grapes. The other thing is that the skin becomes thin. It's getting stretched out. And this is another thing we need to be very careful of the vineyard. If you have a delicate grape like Pinot Noir, you have to regulate your water so carefully because if they take in too much moisture at this point, they'll just burst. So after Veraison, the coloration of the grapes, the expansion, the inflating of the grapes, we've uh, already at this point controlled how many canes, how many shoots we're going to have. We've already thinned down the amount of bunches that we want to have so that hopefully we have the ideal amount of clusters of fruit on our vines. But now we need to start thinning out leaves. Leaves are the next issue. For most of the season, we like leaves because leaves absorb sunlight. They create photosynthesis. They give carbohydrates to the grapes so that the grapes can grow and ripen. If, let's say, you're trying to restrict your water before you top the vines and you accidentally overshoot and you dry the vines out too much, your leaves are going to wilt. And as soon as those leaves wilt, poof, that vine is done. It cannot absorb any more sunlight, which means that those grapes cannot grow anymore. They can't ripen anymore. So even though we are trying to starve these vines a little bit, we still have to keep them alive. But like I said, August is a time to start pruning back leaves especially at this point, the basil leaves. Now, I'm not saying basil, we're not making pesto here. I'm saying basil, as in of the base. 
the basal leaves are the lower leaves. You've got the upper leaves, which are catching lots of sunlight, they're providing some nice shade, and then you've got the basal leaves, which are kind of clustered all around your fruit. And at this point in the season, they just start to eat up energy from the plant. So we prune those out, we leave only the leaves that we need to catch sunlight, no inefficiencies, no excess, stick to business. And it makes sense that we get hard-nosed at this point because coming up at the end of August is the beginning of the end. If you're growing an early ripening grape like Chardonnay, then by the third or fourth week in August, you can start testing for sugar and evaluating whether that fruit is ripe enough to harvest. And harvest is, of course, the main event. It's the reason that we're all here. And it is exactly where I'm going to stop talking today. The next episode in our Vine Life series is going to be entirely on the harvesting and processing of grapes. Thank you all for listening to Uncork the Sun today with me. Obviously, there are some omissions from today's agenda, but thematically, you should know why by the end of this episode. It's because we want quality over quantity. So we're going to split this up into three episodes. We're going to bend down some shoots from this episode, stick them in the ground, wait until they root, and then cut them off next year to create three different plants. And I guess I already just gave you a spoiler right there for the episode on planting grapevines, so look at that. You tricked me. You got some information anyways. I am, as always, recording this episode from the Vinstitute Wine School, which is right between the towns of Oliver and Soyuz, surrounded by scores and scores of vineyards and wineries. And to learn more about the wineries in this area, your place to go is www.oliverasoyuz.com. As I mentioned earlier, last week we did a live virtual Vinstitute broadcast where I talked a bit about rosé wines. You can still check that out on the Oliver Asoyus Wine Country Facebook page, and you also still have plenty of time to catch the next one, which is going to be held on June 9th at 7pm. For the topic of that virtual Vinstitute, we are going to be talking about oak, which is of course something that I discussed in the most recent episode of this podcast, episode 3, we talk about how winemakers use oak. And in the Virtual Institute on June 9th, we're going to look closely at four wines that utilize oak in different ways. To find out more information and what those wines are, visit Oliver Soyuz Wine Country or the Institute Wine School on Facebook. If you want to post about this show or the live tastings on social media, use the hashtag UncorkTheSun. This podcast is a collaboration between Oliver Soyuz Wine Country and the Institute Wine School and is released on Friday every second week. If you have any questions about wine or winemaking, feel free to email me at moss at The music for this episode was provided by Olav. To hear more of his work, visit olav.bandcamp.com. The host has been me, Moss Shokogel, hoping that your tendrils never droop. Whether you're experiencing the beauty of Oliver Asoyus wine country from the comfort of your home, or whether you are planning a trip here in the future, we cannot wait to raise a glass with you and uncork the sun together.